Busy Being Black listeners now have an exclusive discount at my favorite publishing house, Pluto Press, an independent publisher of radical left-wing nonfiction books. Established in 1969, Pluto is one of the oldest radical publishing houses in the UK, but its focus remains making timely interventions in contemporary struggles. You'll find a curated list of my favorite books and your exclusive discount code in the show notes. Thanks to funding from the European Cultural Foundation, I'm embarking on a series of conversations exploring queer Black solidarity across Europe during the COVID-19 crisis. As COVID-19 continues to disproportionately impact Black people and communities of color across the globe, these conversations will focus on how marginalized, othered, and vulnerable communities are coming together in solidarity to share their stories, cultures, and acts of protest and resistance. Thank you to the European Cultural Foundation for investing in our stories. In this final conversation in this series supported by the European Cultural Foundation, I'm in conversation with someone working with and for LGBTQ refugees and who might be able to shed some light on the progress being made to ensure our asylum-seeking siblings have access to the resources, community, and safety they deserve. Dr. S. Shelvin is a globally recognized legal expert on refugee and human rights claims based on sexual or gender identity and expression. His Difference, Stigma, Shame, and Harm, or DISH, model is a positive tool to determine an LGBTQ asylum claim, which is now used globally and endorsed by the United Nations High Commission for Refugees. In 2014, Newsweek Europe described the DISH model as a simple starting point that cuts across borders. In this conversation, we explore Dr. Shelvin's entry point into the UK and into law and he shares with us his motivations for defending the human rights of LGBTQ asylum seekers. He discusses his adolescence, a young brown man encountering his sexuality in the age of Section 28, his role as a storyteller and translator, the development and importance of the DISH model, and how he's learned to be human from those he empowers and serves. I'm Josh Rivers, and I'm Busy Being Black with Dr. S. Shelvin. How's your heart? I'm in really in a great place. Um, my husband and I recently celebrated our 19th anniversary, and I very much am at a place where I know that uh, I love and I am loved. So you know, I feel yeah, my heart feels full. Yeah. How um, how did you get into law? Like, was there, were you a young person, you were curious about how the world works? I mean, take us back to, to you figuring out this is the particular route you wanted to go down. We, we got five hours or yeah. five minutes? <laughs> 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 I, I, I mean, the, the short summary is, is this, is that um, I was born in Sri Lanka, so clearly this is not a tan, hence why I'm, I'm here on, on this podcast. Um, and in 77, 78, um, being Tamil, uh, I, you know, there were anti-Tamil rights in Colombo. Um, my mother was already here in, in the UK um, doing some postgrad work as a, an anaesthetist. Um, but my father and mother decided that it was not a safe space to be in Sri Lanka to bring up two young Tamil boys. So because of my mother's visa um, already here in the UK, we were able to piggyback her visa as her dependence and arrive here on the 6th of September 1978. Um, and the whole issue of difference um, was very much um, part of my identity from a very young age, uh, but primarily in a positive sense, um, because even though my brother and I were the only non-white kids at school, we, we grew up in, in, in Sussex, is that my, my parents instilled in us a very rich cultural 
heritage and history on which to hook to, uh, to as a positive sense of identity, because as Tamils, we came from the Dravidian race with the Mahanjadaro and Harapna, the ancient Indus Valley civilization, where thousands of years, even before Rome and Greece, you know, we had cities with, you know, grid systems like New York, uh, irrigation, drainage, uh, poetry, you know, all that was instilled as part of our, our heritage. So whilst, you know, it, our, our fellow English students thousands of years ago were, you know, in caves going, ugh, we had poetry and literature. Mm -hmm. So for, for us, that sense of positive sense of identity was, was very much instilled within my brother and I, uh, our, our, our sort of youth very early on. And then at 14, I, you know, um, having been, you know, taught, you know, I'd go to medical school and become a doctor. My mum said, look, you've done so much um, work in, in, in medicine. Why don't you try something new? So my careers advisor got me a work placement at the local magistrate's court, Worthing Magistrate's Court. And I worked shut out the clerks there and uh, worked shut out a barrister. And I thought, this is me. That's, you know, I'm a storyteller. I love storytelling. One of my earliest memories when I was five years old um, was at Christmas at Cookville Primary and standing on, on, a, on a stool and being asked to recite the story of Goldilocks and the Three Bears. And what I loved is not just telling the story, but looking around the room and seeing the faces of my friends, like, you know, listening to every word I, mm. I, I spoke. Um, so that was magical. But 14 was also a very important year for me because thank God for Channel 4 late night films and, and videotapes because... For me, it was that awakening of Derek Jarman um, and his film Sebastian. And that was my awakening of my emotions and feelings, my attraction to people of the same sex. Um, and suddenly there was a light bulb moment saying, this is me. This is, you know, everything started to make sense. My non-conformity as a child where I like birthday cakes with roses and butterflies and, you know, uh, where my brother had a football uh, page, you know, my, my non-conformity, my inability to fit in with what I was expected to be as a boy suddenly made sense because of my attraction, my difference. So from then I realised, wait a minute here, how am I going to fit in? I, I knew my family would reject me and we, we may talk about that later. But, you know, the fact that I would not be able to fulfil the requirements and needs and the stereotype, the expectations of, of what I was or who I was supposed to be. Um, and then I went to university at Southampton, I ended up going into study politics and, uh, and law. Um, and I realised that unequal age of consent, you know, this is, you know, 94 was when they reduced the age of consent from 21 to 18. Um, the ban on openly lesbian and gay people serving in the armed forces. There's no such thing as employment and uh, non-discrimination provisions. Not even civil punishment, same-sex marriage wasn't even a, a figment of imagination. So for me, I thought, well, how am I going to do something to change this? And political science, there are two types of citizens. There's the passive citizen who just sits by and watches the world go by, and the active citizen. Because I thought, I knew I needed to change the world, and, to be, and I needed to be part of that change. So for me, the law was very much, from a very selfish viewpoint, I didn't go into the law to help others. I went into the law to empower myself as a human being. Oh. So for me, the law was a natural progress to arm myself. And if through my skills, through my advocacy, I was able to empower others or to be the good. But for me, it was very much a selfish route to my own empowerment. 
There's so much here. I mean, the, the first thing is, it's funny that five is kind of, uh, uh, with many of the people I speak to, something happens. People, There's a memory there. Mine, for example, is interviewing my sister's dolls, right? <laughs> like, I always wanted to be having conversations <laughs> with people and, and finding out. But so you must have, and correct me if I'm wrong, but if, if I'm doing the math correctly in my head, and I'm not very good at mental math, but you will have been coming of age and, and coming into your sexuality during the AIDS crisis, right? Well, even more important, Section 28. Um, because that, you know, 19, April 1989, I remember dates, 22nd of April 1989 was a light bulb moment with um, Sebastian, um, the, the film. Uh, I, I, and for me, it, it was the time where I went to a Roman Catholic school and my RE teacher, as you say, the time of AIDS, you know, my RE teacher said homosexuality was a mental illness. But I knew I had that connection with my English teacher, Mrs. Clark. And this is where my, the intersectionality of my identity really comes to the forefront because, you know, I, I, this is, you know, I think we're the second or third year of GCSE, you know, I'm 46 now, so this was not, you know, in the late 80s, 1989. And um, we had to do something called a wider reading essay. And for me, there were no South Asian authors, you know, the only book I remember recall, reading was Sumitra's story by Rachel Smith, but she introduced me to American authors such as Alice Walker and James Baldwin. And through Alice Walker, she clearly knew about me. But remember, Section 28 said that you couldn't pr promote pretend families. So I couldn't have this conversation with her about me. And she clearly felt that she couldn't have that conversation directly with me. But she opened the door to this literature, Alice Walker, Colour Purple, was the first time I read about a same-sex couple. You know, that scene where, you know, the, the kiss um, was just so magical to me. So for, for me, it was through the portal of black American literature mm. that I discovered who I was. Um, and, you know, thank God for the social science section of the, the library at Worthing. It was only through reading mm. about, you know, we clearly, you know, we're from a generation, I'm clearly from a generation where we didn't have any out queer role models who were positive. You know, there were stereotypes, John Inman, you know, Larry Graceman, you know, Larry Grayson, you know, they weren't any positive, and especially not any queer black role models. So I was gaining a sense of my identity through American literature in relation to my queerness and my blackness in a political as well as an identity sense. Mm, one of the th James Baldwin quotes that stands out for me actually is, um, you think your heartbreak you know, you think you're alone in the world with all of your heartbreak, and then you read and you find out that others just like you. Something I'm paraphrasing. Well, <laughs> yeah, no, no, no. I mean, my favorite James Baldwin's Giovanni's Room, and that was, you know, at, at a later stage. But you know, Alice Walker says in Temple of My Familiar that there'll be people in, in your life who will leave a palm print on your soul, and that is the most magical sentence ever for me. That you know, we learn about ourselves through the lives and experiences of others. I think that's very important. So we're okay. We're back on the timeline. So you're um, uh, you're at university. You're studying law. It's a tool for empowerment for you. When did the when did this that switch come? When did you kind of then veer into like uh, asylum and refugee rights? Well, for, for, so what happened was a week before my first year exams, and, and this is where the, the personal comes into the professional, is that you know um, I, I started to not be able to live this double life. You know, and that really goes into the narratives of my queer refugee clients, where I was at home pretending 
uh, not to be anything but the stereotype you expect from my parents. And, and the great, you know, my mask was that, you know, I was expected to have an arranged marriage. So if girls try to uh, make an advance, I said, sorry, can't do anything. I'm having an arranged marriage. Right. You know, it, was a, it was a great mask. Um, but then I started having relationships um, when I was at uni and, you know, they had an endogenous name, Jamie, uh, you know, um, Ed, um, you know, uh, and therefore I, you know, used to introduce them to my friends through the narrative as, as female, but they were absolutely male. And then, you know, suddenly I let it slip, you know, in February 1995 to a friend of mine and the world didn't, you know, the ground didn't open up and, the, you know, I wasn't swallowed and, and people accepted me for who I am. And then in, in May 96, you know, 31st May, my mother asked me when I was at home one weekend, you know, just before my first exam, Chelvin, are you gay? Uh, and if you are, don't worry, I'll, I'll continue to love and accept you. Um, and this was my release moment. This was my light bulb moment in relation to coming out fully. Mm. You know, this was the one barrier in me having no longer to hide. So I told her that I, I was gay. The following morning, she woke up having not slept and she, sorry, I woke up and she hadn't slept and she said, look, an ultimatum, two choices. Uh, one, I either um, agreed to be celibate for the next five years and after five years, they'll get me married off. Um, uh, and my friends used to joke, you know, you can't even be celibate for five minutes for five years. <laughs> um, or, or, or the other option is that I'd have to leave home uh, and never come back and I'd be disowned. And I thought, well, I couldn't live a lie again. I'd come out, I'd disclosed who I was. So I went back to uni um, and everything was sent to me in 19, uh, 18 cardboard boxes and 19 dustbin bags, a letter by my mother's solicitor saying that I was disowned and disinherited until I recounted my behavior and practices. So I lost everything, I had no money. Um, but what I did have, what Armistead Morpin says, that you know, you have your biological family and your logical family, your chosen family, mm -hmm. is that I was very lucky to have a chosen family. So that was my gatekeeper move moment to say, look, once you've been rejected by your family, you don't really care what other people think. And so that therefore it motivated me to, you know, as I said, you know, I am a human being, but I have multiple identities, the, ref the you know, pseudo refugees, the real immigrant, the uh, person of colour, you know, the, the black activist, the queer person. I have a disability, I have a 40 festival hearing loss, so I tick so many boxes on the diversity and inclusion monitoring mm. form. Uh, right. But important for me, I brought those experiences. And one of the great political theorists, you know, I, I loved at uni was Iris Marin Young and her book, The Politics of Difference, where she said that those of us who come from these marginalised communities have a duty and a role to be able to speak for our own experiences and for our own communities. And that's what's been at the center and the core of the advocacy, the activism, the academic work I do, is that I no longer find it acceptable for us as the marginalized group to play the victims and the majority to play our saviors. You know, this victim savior culture is something which I find to be completely, um, you know, I, 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 I react badly towards Say it. Say more about you it. Know, uh, well, for, for example, you know, and this goes to my refugee work. So, you know, in a lot of the refugee work I do here in the UK and, you know, <coughs> sorry, internationally, especially in Europe, I did something called the Fleeing Homophobia Report in 2010, 2011. There were representatives from 26 countries um, in a room, and these were the country experts of the individual countries talking about the experiences of queer refugees in their national jurisdictions. I was fortunate enough to be the country expert for the UK. In that room, I was the only person of colour wow. in that room as an expert. 
And I said to, to my contemporaries, look, this is 2010. How come in Europe, I'm the only person of color who's put forward for a European study in relation to um, what the experiences of queer refugees. And importantly, the people of color, the queer refugees who were introduced in relation to the workshops, the plenary sessions, were people of color. But it's almost like the victims of people of color, the saviors are white. Um, and that's where I find, you know, especially with the whole stuff with Commonwealth and criminalization, you know, I really think it's vital to have authentic voices. Mm. Um, we no longer need to live in a world where we're lectured about what we need and what we want and what we should have. We know from our own experiences what we need and, uh, and the, the direction we want to pursue. So, uh, so you know, even today I will go to meetings and I am, you know, sometimes you feel like the token person of colour on a, on a speak, at a speaking event or at a meeting, but it's important to be in the room. And that's why visibility is so important. Mm. You know, that's why I do so much in being visible on social media, on Twitter, on LinkedIn, because what I find, find is that, you know, when I was you know, in my youth, in my 20s, in my 30s, you know, there, there were no visible role models. I think it's so important now for us to stand up for those of us who've got the power, who've got the privilege uh, to be able to stand up and say, look, you can affect change mm. to be able to stand up and provide that role model to others. And so what we know as well about, um, or one of the things that, that, that we're learning is how um, prescriptive um, the kind of quote unquote queer identity is vis-a-vis um, -vis the Western lens, right? And that so many of our queer refugees, um, sorry, our asylum seeking siblings, um, do not meet whatever kind of standard or prescription is, is, um, has been kind of set as the standard in the West, right? And so this idea then of authenticity, I imagine has informed um, the DISH model. So the different stigma, shame and harm model, which is uh, a tool you've came up with um, to help determine an LGBTQ asylum claim. Can you talk about the, the DISH model and how that came to be? Okay, so um, when I started at the bar, so I started full-time practice in 2001, nearly 20 years ago. And when it came to gay male claims, because lesbians were very much not even in, in the forefront, gay male claims, it's all, it all distilled down to sex. Whether an individual be caught by the Basaji, the religious police, but, um, in Tehran having sex with his boyfriend. Yeah, So it's all about whether or not you could be a refugee if you were caught having sex. Now, I so wish, I so wish, and I am standing in my apartment, I so wish my life was just about sex, yeah? <laughs> but it's not. <laughs> no, fortunately it's not. Because when I walk outside my apartment door, when I go outside into what we call the outside world, it's not about having sex which causes the express or provides the expression of identity and in those countries leads to persecution it's about non-conformity it's about not fitting in now um under the labor government between 2004 and 2010 there's something called the reasonable tolerability discretion test so what the uh, what the uk used to do is that we accept that you're a bisexual woman or you're a gay man um, we accept that in Iran, you could face a death penalty or in Jamaica, you could face curative rape or murder uh, as a, a lesbian. Um, but if I point a gun at you, you would not, the majority of people wouldn't run towards the gun. 
Yeah? They would run away from the gun, you know, the fight or flight. Now, we call that discretion, or that's what the courts call it, discretion. You would be voluntarily discreet. You would not voluntarily disclose who you are because of your fear of persecution. And the test in the courts from 2004 to 2010 was the fact that unless you could prove that voluntary discretion was not reasonably tolerable, you could be sent back. And in the case I did, one of my first cases of the Court of Appeal in January 2006 on a gay man from Columbia, RG Columbia, even though we had medical evidence that my client would have a nervous breakdown if he had to try and conceal who he was, the Court of Appeal said that's not enough. So between 2004 and 2010, under the Labour government, we sent back LGB, not T, uh, and we'll talk about that uh, later, I'm sure, but LGB individuals to these countries where we accepted that they were LGB, we accepted that if they were openly LGB, they will face persecution. But because we said they would choose not to be open about their identi identity, we would send, send them away to back to these countries of origin. Now, in July 2010, the Supreme Court said, look, that's not an, a fair test. Yeah, no go back to where you are and hide, basically. That's the approach. Yeah, yeah. well, well no, that you choose to hide. The UK wouldn't force you to hide, but because you're a human being, you would not run towards the gun. You'd run away from right. the gun, so you'd be voluntarily discreet. I mean, it's, a, it's nonsense. But in July 2010, the Supreme Court said, look, that's not fair, it's not bad. If you will be discreet because of a fear of persecution, you ask for a refugee. They still kept the discretion test because they said that if you are only discreet because of a personal or a social uh, reasons choice, you're not a refugee. And that's part of my litigation strategy to get rid of that. But what happened after that, and now we've got a shift in government from Labour to the uh, Conservative Lib Dem uh, coalition, was that having previously accepted, look, we accept that you're a lesbian, we accept that you're a bisexual man. They now said, well, prove that you're LGB. And what happened between July 2010 and 2013-14 is that LGB people seeking asylum to try and prove that they were lesbian, gay or bisexual started to produce photographic evidence and video material of them engaging in sex with somebody of their same sex to prove that they were LGBT. Right. Now, there are two issues with this. I mean, when I was an undergraduate at Southampton, I'm you know, politics and law, you know, we used to have a joke. What's the difference between a straight man and a gay man? Two pints of lager. Right, yeah. So, okay. so, so yeah, it's just that. But more importantly, what sort of society were we that we were now expected, or that people seeking asylum based on their, their queerness were submitting photographic and video material to try and prove that they're gay? So in 2011, I, I started my PhD studies. I thought, look, how, is the way, how are we going to overcome that? And then I went into my own experiences of my own sexual identity. I went into the work I'd done uh, sort of in, in advocacy and activism in, in my academic work. And I thought, it's not about being LGB. The, the reason why the individual is persecuted, and remember, lesbian, gay, bisexual are very much labels of the global north. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. You know, in, in places like Jamaica, you know, you're a Batiman if you're gay, you're a Sodomite if you're a lesbian. In Iran, in Bangladesh, you know, the, the words of identity, of queerness, are words of hate. They're no positive identity. So I focus on the issue of difference. And so 2011, when I went to a meeting in Geneva, um, UNHCR had convened a roundtable and previously been at a meeting in Belgium. I said, look, we're looking at difference. It's because of the difference of the person seeking asylum, away from the cis-normative, heteronormative stereotype 
which is viewed in the, in the eyes of the potential persecutor, that's why they're targeted. And that's why I came up with the model. Difference leads to stigma because of the cultural, religious, and social norms of the country of origin. You know, uh, Adam and Eve rather than Adam and Steve, you know, mm. the friends, the neighbors, the family. And then stigma, once you're told who you are is wrong, then you have internalized shame. We're not talking about psychiatric levels of shame. If you as a human being are told that who you are is wrong, that's an automatic human reaction. Different stigma shame comes in the, the narratives of the majority of queer people in the world. Not, not all, but in the majority mm. from my, my own experience. What makes the queer refugee is the harm, the harm which is inflicted on them because of their difference. So that's why the model came into being. So, and so the DISH model uh, effectively rehumanizes the queer refugee. From the narrative of the queer refugee. So, you know, the DISH model is there because what UNHCR said in-, in, in And this is the United Nations uh, Human- uh, United Nations High Commission for Refugees. Thank you. And at that meeting, you know, a representative from UNHCR and a representative from an American NGO said, look, we need a questionnaire. We need 40, you know, we need a questionnaire to prove that somebody's gay. Now, you know, Josh, you know me, I'm not a shy, retiring, poor flower type. So I, I, I stood up said, over my dead body. <laughs> what, what, what happened in the UK with Somali minority clans, the Benadiri clans, you know, Somali in, in abject civil war from 1990 at the time, was that if somebody was from a minority clan, they'll be asked a list of questions to prove that they were from the minority clan. If they only got 15 out of the 40 questions correct, uh-uh, you're not minority clan. If they got 38 out of the 40 questions correct, uh-uh, you're not minority clan because you've actually learned the answers from the internet. Yeah? So it's not about, the dish model is not about providing a questionnaire. It's about providing trigger questions through the, the sole basis of the narrative of the individual person seeking asylum. Right. So you don't need the boyfriend or the girlfriend. You don't need to have gone to Soho or Manchester to the, the bars and clubs. You're never going to be able to afford to go because you're only given £35 a week from the government as your, your um, uh, maintenance yeah. run. Yeah? So, so the point being here is that it's purely on the narrative. And it's by giving that safe space to, to the person seeking asylum to write their story. Because the first thing I do with all my clients is say, look, this, I create the safe space. Mm. I say, this is a safe space. And, you know, you, not, no harm is going to happen to you. You know, nobody's going to, um, you know, the Home Office is not going to come and detain you. Um, I want you to know that this is your time to speak and my time to listen. And the first question I ask them is not when did you realise you were gay, but when did you realise you were different? Mm. Yeah? And from the difference, not from a global north perspective, but from their own perspective, from their own stories, primarily in the country of origin, or in some cases where they've learned about their difference here in the UK. So it comes from their own words. It's their own narrative. And the wonderful thing about it is that when you give the uh, person seeking asylum the ability to be able to write their story, a lot of my clients have statements which are 30 to 40 pages long. You know, and, and it's wonderful because it's their first opportunity to tell their story on their own terms. To speak. Yeah. Uh, and, and, you know, this is why I say, you know, I'm a storyteller and an interpreter because I'm a storyteller because I'm there to tell the stories of my clients. And I'm an interpreter because I interpret their stories into the foreign language we call the law. But it has to come from their own story. Yeah, this is a beautiful connection to something Maud Goba said in an interview earlier this year that, you know, 
people come from countries and experiences and cultures in which they've always had to be silent, right? They, they couldn't speak their truth. And then all of a sudden they come to the UK and they're forced to speak about something that they don't know how to speak about in a language that we understand, but that they don't, as in, in a cultural language about queerness that, that we expect everyone around the world to know. So this is a really beautiful uh, connection. Yeah, uh, uh, and the baseline, it has to be their story. You know, so the, the, the reason why the dish models there is they say, I know. The, the point is that they tell their story and from that, when you apply the dish model, I mean, of course, the dish model is, is a positive tool. It's not a tool to be used as a negative tool to refuse the science. Mm. Yeah? It's, you know, it, I, the model I've been using since 2011, um, if you can go on the website, Migrant Law Clinic, or on the recent one on the dish model, you know, you'll hear testimonials from people, you know, you and I know like a drunkier party, you know, who for the first time in... August 2016 was able to tell her story through the DISH model and then got granted asylum. Yeah, so these are actual real experiences of people who've used the model and are now safe in the UK as refugees. And is this different to, I don't know if this question makes any sense, but is this different to coming out? Well, it, 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 do, you, do you see what I mean? Because yeah, well, I, I think we have different comings out. I mean, I, you know, uh, for example, I, I seem to find that I come out, you know, every day or every other day to different people. Yeah, yeah. Um, and this is about coming out to yourself. In effect, mm, mm. you know, the, the fact is that you know, under refugee law in the UK, following the eight J Iran uh, Supreme Court case of two thousand ten, you don't specifically have had to encounter ill treatment, what we call persecution on the basis of sexual and gender identity. Oh, interesting. To be okay. So yeah. it's the, the, the okay. potential for harm as well. Exactly. We talk about, it's, well, it's, it's purely based on future risk of harm. While some people can base on the narrative and, and include this in their refugee claim, I have many clients who have been completely disbelieved about what's happened to them in the past. But, you know, and, and these cases sometimes go two, three times through the system before they're able to find their voice. I mean, you know, drunk apart, you know, a drunk said she was a lesbian for the first time in 2012. Yeah. Mm. And she got refused asylum. And, and there were many, you know, it's not just the courts and the tribunals and the home office who are at fault with the drunkest case. It was also those lawyers who represented her who said that she had no chance. Yeah. So what's really important in these cases is that, you know, individuals are being able to give them given the space to be able to tell their story. Everyone is talking about magnesium. It's all you hear about. But why? What do we know about magnesium? Well, magnesium is the number one mineral that 75 percent of Americans are deficient in. If you are a woman over 35, magnesium will help you rediscover balance, energy and vitality. Magnesium supports more than 300 enzymatic reactions in your body, including those involved in hormonal balance. From functional medicine doctors to mental well-being and female hormone experts, we all know that magnesium is the one mineral to improve all aspects of well-being and health. But which one? Magnesium Breakthrough from Bioptimizers. The trusted choice recommended by leading experts with seven best-absorbed forms of magnesium to ensure your body receives the support it needs for overall well-being. Go to bioptimizers.com slash balance today and use code BALANCE10 for 10% off. Support your journey to wellness at B-I-O-P-T-I-M-I-Z-E-R-S dot com forward slash balance. Magnesium Breakthrough from Bioptimizers, your foundation to optimal health and vitality. I had a conversation um, with a, um, a Black trans woman who's seeking international protection in Spain. 
it was a very we kind of forged this conversation with my Spanish and, and her English, and it's it's a beautiful reflection on um, on her life experience, why she's seeking international protection, but also where Europe really falls down, um, and we kind of got into this conversation about spaces and plantations and the surveillance state, which it's this incredible, this incredible conversation. But it really struck me that over the course of this research and these conversations, it seems like the, the values of, of the European Union more broadly, but of you know, the UK specifically as a nation state, um, whatever purported values we say we uphold kind of fall down at the border, right? And then those, these, we, you know, we sign human rights charters, we say that we uphold, you know, uh, dignity, democracy, whatnot, but that actually we, we then have these deeply or heavily militarized borders with lots of liminal space, right, where people like um, this black trans woman in Spain can't have, don't have access to healthcare or food or provisions or help, you know, or protection, right? So, it's it's just been very fascinating to me to think about you and and people like you working within these liminal spaces, right? Diving into them and kind of almost extending the values where they ought to be. Does that make sense? Well, I, I mean, this wonderful label which Priti Patel said a couple of weeks ago about activist lawyers. Oh yeah, <laughs> and I, I, and I, I wear that label with pride. Mm -hmm. You know, I, I, there was a lot of negative reaction by the Bar Council and the Law Society regarding that, saying, you know, lawyers are only are here to uh, apply the law. I've always been very clear. I'm not happy with where the law is, yeah? Um, so I work within the law to change and develop the law to where I see the law should be. So, you know, as I said earlier on, you know, I want to get rid of the discretion test. But importantly, I would not be working within the system if I didn't think that the system works to, to ensure that the UK and our European partners provide protection to those who generally need protection. Yeah? And that has got to be the message, is that Europe does provide protection, but it's about getting those avenues, those corridors of, of, of access to representation, to support. Um, sorry, my, my, my dog Veritas is barking. That's so okay. That's, that's why I stopped the North Lucy. Veritas is true. Life happens, so, life <laughs> happens. That's <laughs> So, uh, yeah, the, the point being here is that, you know, uh, I, I'm concerned that the black trans uh, woman who you spoke to hasn't been able to access the support groups which are in Spain. There are support groups sure. in Spain which will provide the support. And I, I'm sure you can speak to organisations such as Kaleidoscope Trust or Micro Rainbow uh, to um, access that, that support for her. But, um, you know, we look at the statistics, the Home Office published statistics only two weeks ago on LGB claims. And the previous year, only 22% of claims on sexual identity were allowed by the Home Office at first position. That's, not, that's, that's now gone up to 46%. And then we know that when those cases go to the tribunal, so if you're a person coming to asylum in the UK, you first of all have your asylum claim dealt with by the Home Office. And then if you're refused asylum and you have grounds to appeal, you'll then go through the, the independent tribunal where you have independent judges to go through. And, you know, the majority of those cases, you know, the majority of the cases, even non-LGB cases, around 50% of them get allowed on appeal. So the majority of people who come to the UK to claim asylum are either granted asylum at first instance by the Home Office or on appeal. 
Yeah? So that's where the statistics really do bite, and that's not really covered by the Daily Mail, or the Daily Express, or whoever is anti-refugee and anti-migrant. You know, even those going through the, the on the boats, dinghies from Calais to the UK, you know, the Home Affairs Select Committee were told last month that the majority of people, if they have their claims decided in the UK, are refugees. Interesting. So the point being, the point, the reason why we have the issue is that there's currently no legal route to come to the UK to claim asylum. You don't have an asylum visa. You know, there's something called the resettlement scheme. That's we talk about 200, 300, less than a thousand a year come through the resettlement scheme. But the majority of people are, you know, have no legal route. So they either have to come to the border and tell the immigration officer, "I'm here to claim asylum." But even then, they've, they've had to find some sort of route um, to get on the plane or, or the carrier to come to the UK. Or they're already in the UK through another visa status and because they fear going back home, claim asylum. So the whole issue here is that the reason why we have these criminal gangs, these smugglers, to get these refugees into the country, who we accept are genuine refugees, is because we've created the demand by ensuring that there's no legal route to claim asylum in the UK. Right. And so you mentioned there's, you've separated the T from the LGB. How do, how do the asylum claims for our trans siblings differ? Or why are they distinct from our LGB siblings? Well, in effect, the whole point is that if you are born um, uh, cis cisgendered, um, natal, biological, let's say female, yeah. uh, sorry, male, yeah, male or female, yeah? So your passport, your registration documents will have your biological natal gender um, uh, on the documentation. But you come here into the UK and you live in what you consider to be a free and open society and you start expressing your chosen gender, your real gender identity, then it's very dis difficult to say that person can be voluntarily discreet because whatever level of their transition to their trans identity, their gender identity expression, when they go back to their country of origin, their official documents will say the natal biological gender, right. and they will be expressing their chosen gender. So that's why the discretion test, you know, I've been working with trans clients, and you know, can I just say for the record that you know the reason why lesbian, gay, and bisexual people have had their rights, and especially through Europe, is through our trans siblings. Mm. You know, so our trans siblings through the 70s and 80s, which really developed the law in this area. But when, you know, when I was doing these cases, when the discretion test was applied in you know, 2004, 2010, none of my trans clients had the discretion test applied to them because you can't be discreet. You can't be voluntarily mm. discreet because you're presenting in your chosen gender and you're, all your documents say in your natal gender. So there's no discretion. What are you learning from your clients? Is there kind of a recurring theme or is there something that, that stands out to you as kind of a big lesson you've learned from the people you, you represent? Oh, um, gosh, when, when, <laughs> I learned from my clients what it's like to be human. Say more. Um, because, yeah. uh, well, it, it's, you know, as I said, my trans clients, I mean, you know, and I've worked with trans clients, not only in an asylum context, but, you know, I, I did a case called Penny Norma Davis in 2007 about pension rights, uh, pension rights. And the whole point about um, the ability to live freely and openly, to be who we are, is we can only really sort of hold that experience in our hearts when we know what it's like not to have those freedoms. Uh, and that's what I learned from my clients um, that, you know, and as I said, you know, having been rejected by my family and, you know, 20 years later, we're, we're 
started to build bridges and my mother actually apologized for what she she done uh, last year it is that you know it's only through rejection it's only through how to reassemble ourselves as human beings through those experiences that we learn how to be a better human being um so that's what i i learned from my clients i, I you know I, I i always believe that francis bacon you know uh, hobbes quote you know knowledge is power um and i you know i mean as you know josh you know i i, I carry on you know doing all sorts of degrees and qualifications <laughs> i i never want to stop learning my my husband jokes that you know the, the day i stop learning is the day he you know lights the funeral pyre you know at my hindu funeral you know so i never want to stop learning and that's what i find fascinating is that we learn through my work empowering you know i don't win a case for my client you know my, my clients win their own cases all i do is empower them with those tools those swords and shields to be able to get refugee status and, and that's magical it is it's brilliant um your PhD in law thesis examines the shift in approach in asylum cases in England and Wales from conduct to identity, which I think we've discussed with, with, um, with the DISH model, right? Um, yeah. and, and the thesis is titled, At the End of the Rainbow, Where Next for the Queer Refugee? So where next for the queer refugee? What does your research find? Well, um, the, the fact that we've got to get rid of the labels, that the, the requirement to say that we have to look at somebody who's lesbian or gay or bisexual. It's about not being straight enough, not being cisgendered enough. Yeah. So the whole issue of difference. And, and that comes from the Refugee Convention. You know, the individual is only here seeking asylum because of their difference. Because if it was there for their sameness, they wouldn't suffer the persecution because the persecutor, the potential persecutor, would have no power. So for me, it's about trying to look at not the actual you know i mean we talk about you know identity we talk about agency uh, and for me uh, my work is really focused on not looking at lesbian gay bisexual but looking at the imputed looking at the asylum claim through the eyes of the potential persecutor why are they first facing persecution so that in effect gets rid of the discretion test because in order to be successfully discreet the queer person actually has to prove straight yeah, and that includes, you know, and as we know, you know, from our own experiences of speaking to, to people is that to prove straight, that means you having to enter in an opposite sex relationship, have children, you know, every, not only one day, one week, one month, but for the rest of their lives. And that in effect is a form of persecution. So even under the current law where the Supreme Court said that even if you are, sorry, if you are discreet, only because of a personal or social reason, you are not a refugee. Well, that's that's nonsense mm. because what you have to do is actually be straight and that's contrary to what is called a protected characteristic the immutable uh, innate characteristic of sexual or gender identity or expression so so you know what my my thesis is really going on go, focusing on through the portal of the dish model is the fact that what we need to look at is difference we need to look at what steps would the individual need to engage in to successfully prove straight in order not to be identified as queer i mean it strikes me as well and therefore not i'm sorry say that again sorry not to be identified as queer and therefore uh, to make sure that they don't face persecution it's almost as if the dish model is a really great model for society in general <laughs> right this kind of like what's next for the queer refugee is hopefully what's next for the rest of us right we see it with uh, the transphobia and islamophobia that um so many of our siblings experience now and often simultaneously we see it with racism and discrimination and misogynoir and misogyny uh, it's almost like this 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 move beyond labels would benefit so many of us all of us in fact 
Well, I'm in the Swedish Migration um, Board um, user dish model now in their religious claims. EASA, which is the European Asylum Support Agency, also looks at issues regarding gender. So yes, I mean, it crosses not just only sexual uh, and gender identity claims, but also in, in relation to how you know, individuals who face persecution come to our shores, cross our borders and seek sanctuary. Um, but uh, as I said, you know, different stigma shame, shame you know, is in the narrative of even those of us who don't face persecution, yeah. you know, even those of us who are here in the UK. Uh, and, and it's fascinating that, you know, those who um, critique the, the model, it's almost like, well, you know, and critique what is what I what is called the emotional journey. You know, the whole thing about uh, being a refugee is it's not just only a physical journey, you know, thousands of miles in some cases through, you know, horrific tales of, of harm actually having to, to arrive from their, travel from their country of origin to the UK. But it's also an emotional journey because it's an issue of fear, of a well-founded fear of persecution. Um, and life is an emotional journey. You know, I, I love the phrase, uh, life is, is a journey, not a destination. Yeah. You know, we, we, we learn from our experiences and we hopefully grow uh, uh, in, in our emotional stature through these experiences. So, so yes, I, I mean, what, what I what I hope to share, and you know, I, I'm here to to learn all the time, as I said before, is about having tools to empower refugees in order to obtain sanctuary. What have you learned about solidarity over the course of your career working with our our asylum seeking siblings? Well, um, solidarity has got to be um, the, the starting point, um, you know, I, I, and that's what I, I love the whole thing about uh, concept about intersectionality um, is that uh, a lot of us who've been working in this field, not working, this we've been living <laughs> these experiences, um, uh, ha have come to a point where, you know, th there are almost expected molds of behaviour and development which are imposed on us um, to in order to succeed within our own personal and professional lives. And, and what I've learned as the older, you know, I'm, I'm now 46, is that, you know, the older I get, the, the action or the reaction I am employing myself against the mold, but against the requirement for the normalcy, the, the, the stereotype of what is expected. And I think that's what's really important to be able to, you know, like I said, visibility is so important, to be able to connect with our groups. I mean, that's why I do a lot of, you know, equality at work uh, and working with other marginalised groups to empower ourselves. So I think what's really important, what's really been shown in the Black Lives Matter movement is that, you know, a lot of the work has got to be focused on the experience of black trans people. You know, mm -hmm. Arthur P. Johnson and Sylvia, you know, they were the ones who, who instigate, who lit the torch in relation to the Stonewall rights. So about ensuring that when we look at empowering one marginalised group, we should be empowering all our groups together. And that's what, you know, I, I hate the term equality and diversity. We've now moved to diversity and inclusion. I'd like to look at inclusion and diversity. Um, so I, I'm doing a lot of work, um, you know, with various groups, including the Side Business School at Oxford, in relation to looking at focusing on how we can actually improve the daily lived experiences of, of all marginalised groups. And I mm. think that's what's very important. It's not going to happen overnight. No. It, it can't happen overnight. Um, and, and, you know, people want to see a quick fix. Uh, and we're never going to have a quick fix. We've got to be able to take things slowly in order to be able to change our societies. 
Um, and, you know, I've been doing work in the Bar um, Equality and Diversity Committee, now the Equality and Diversity Social Mobility Committee. And, you know, I've always said that sometimes we may need to look at positive discrimination. We may need to look at quotas and targets because, you know, at the moment, you know, we, there are no um, people of colour as senior judges in the Supreme Court. You know, Lord Reed, our, our current president of the Supreme Court, was talking, was talking about that in an interview with Clive Corman last month. Our only person of colour judge is in the Court of Appeal at the most senior, the Rabindra Singh or Joseph Singh. And in the High Court, there are about eight or ten. And this is 2020. Mm. And if we're supposed to reflect the society which is outside that courtroom, why is it, you know, in the 12 years I've been working in this community, we've not seen real substantive positive change. So I think we need to start having those difficult conversations about quotas, about targets, to actually achieve the, the change. Because unless we achieve the change, there are those of us who are breaking the glass ceiling, but hitting the lead ceiling. There's that gap. <laughs> so, in, so we need to be able to fill that gap before we can really look at progress and change. Yeah. I like the, the reference to um, Marsha P. Johnson and Sylvia Rivera as well. I, one of the things I keep reminding people um, is that, because I just found this out actually um, earlier this year, is that uh, it was Sylvia Rivera who was working with the Black Panthers. And there was that, there was that very, um, there was a great deal of solidarity between the Black Panthers and the kind of emergent um, LGBTQ rights movement that is often not spoken about or recognized. And so this Black Lives Matter resurgence or amplification rather um, of this summer has, has provided a great opportunity to talk about that more to say, you know, the nascent movement, like as it was in the beginning was very aware that it was about intersectionality before it had that name. It was about cross communal solidarity and like showing up, right? Like, well, and I find that fascinating. I mean, I've recently been approached um, by people within the Tamil diaspora here in the UK. Uh, and, you know, having been rejected by my family because of their cross-cultural views and then even five or six years ago doing a, a, an event for the Tamil Society at Kings and LSE and receiving a horrible hate mail um, email from one of the, the students, medical students saying look you're not a proper Tamil because if you were a proper Tamil you should have hidden who you are. Now speaking to Tamil diaspora at the moment saying look you do know that I'm gay and they said yeah you know it's time for change we need to drive that change. Um, you know you, you've, I mean, it, ironically and I think that's a bad thing is that I've I've had to, because of my so-called um, success in, in my professional um, uh, work, because of that sort of success, I'm being, I've been used as, as a way of showing that being queer is not a disadvantage. Now that's something which we need to be able to attack because it, you know, whatever my standing, who, wherever I live, whatever job I, I do, any human being has a right to be treated equally and fairly so mm. it's not about having you know i mean the goalposts i mean any migrant child well no i mean my mother used to tell my brother and i uh, and put it in our place like you know as a you know children who are not white we need to be 10 times better than our english school friends mm. but to put it in our place she said as somebody who's not white but also a woman she had to be 100 times better uh, and the racism my parents faced in their employment um in the 80s, the 70s 80s and 90s um really drew and you know my brother and I got very very angry about that and used that anger to to you know ensure that we fought such uh, mm. ignorance such prejudice ourselves so it's about education and information sharing but also ensuring that we are very proud of keeping our links to identity now hence why the s children 
you know, I, I don't have a first name. It's the first letter of my father's last name is my first name. And yet you know, people just confuse, oh, well, that's a bit strange. And it's like, well, you're a bit of a racist. That <laughs> 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 there's a cross cross cultural, you know, global village we, we live in. Because people still, you know, I, I rem- you know when I speak to people, you know, some people will you hear Chalvin and say, oh, is that John speaking? Because they hear the English accent, and they don't make the connection between Chalvin and the English accent. So you know, it's about ensuring that we challenge when these things happen rather than be silent, but also education and form. Your, the, your, your young anger reminds me of an Audre Lorde quote, anger is loaded with information and energy. Absolutely. Yeah, um, yeah I, and, and, and you know, I, I mean, my, my brother does a lot of work. I mean, he's a consultant neurosurgeon, neurosurgeon does a lot of work in, in Newcastle and the, the healthcare region regarding um, pay disparity and, and professional progression disparity on the basis of BME. Uh, and, you know, what's really interesting to, to, to connect with is that we need to be able to draw the strands, all the equality strands together. I mean, hence why I'm a trans ally. You know, I, I mean, I do believe that we all have a right to be able to uh, identify in the way we want to be able to identify. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I mean, one of the first questions you asked me, George, is, you know, how is my heart? And, you know, I'm, able, I'm confident being able to say who I am because I know I love and I'm loved. You know, and part of that is being able to have the right to be able to say who I am. You know, that John Stuart Mill, you know, so utility, you know, I'm not doing any harm to anybody by saying who I am. I don't have a... Uh, GRC, a gay recognition certificate. Why is it I'm able to say to you without a certificate that I'm a gay man, but my trans siblings aren't able to, you know, I mean, they have access to certain routes, but they need the gender recognition certificate and other routes to be able Mm. to prove who they are. Who am I to tell my trans siblings, this is who you are? So, you know, I'm I'm very, you know, fired up by the anger in relation to the ignorance which the transphobic, uh, you know, those who are transphobic, those who are anti-trans seem to stir up. To close, I ask all of my guests the same question. What do you hope for? Uh, that we're all able to listen to our heart and keep our head held up high. Beautiful. That's beautiful and, and succinct. <laughs> what a great way to end the show. Dr. S. Shelvin is a globally recognized legal expert on refugee and human rights claims based on sexual or gender identity and expression. His difference, stigma, shame, and harm, or DISH model, is a positive tool to determine an LGBTQ asylum claim, which is now used globally and is endorsed by the United Nations High Commission for Refugees. You'll find links to his work in the show notes. Thank you to our newest funding partner, MyGWork, the LGBT business community. MyGWork is a global recruitment and networking hub for LGBT professionals, graduates, allies, and organizations to promote diversity and inclusion in the workplace and beyond. And as the landscape of work changes beneath our feet, MyGWork's focus on ensuring LGBT voices and experiences are heard is as important as ever. Find out more at MyGWork.com. Busy Being Black is the podcast exploring how we live in the fullness of our queer black lives. Thank you to our partners, UK Black Pride, Blackout UK, The 10th, and Schools Out. And thank you to you, the listeners. Remember this, your support doesn't cost any money. Retweets, ratings, shares, and reviews all help, so please keep the support coming. Finally, thank you to Anthony Giles, a queer black Grammy-nominated producer based in New York City for these bomb-ass Busy Being Black beats. Ashe. Ashe.